Hello, and welcome to Highland Church Audio Sermons. Today, September 23rd, 2018, we're continuing our series titled Knowing Truth, the Letters of John. In today's sermon, The Stages of Spiritual Growth, Pastor Bob Wade will be teaching from 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. We hope you enjoy. In a world of disagreements, large and small. I don't believe that you exist. Go think whatever you want. Go ahead. How can a good and powerful God allow innocent people suffer unspeakable tragedies? But then there's all these questions, you know, about ethics and moral issues as well. And I would say, well, they're crazy for not testing what they think they believe. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. It's as real as what you see. And, and I begin with the assumption that God is love. And love is love is love is love. I think that the orthodox, historic Christian tradition is this vast, diverse conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. Hey, open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. You know, the purpose of the Christian life is supposed to be a process of growth. I mean, we're supposed to be growing continuously more like Christ. And sometimes, you know, that happens on purpose. I mean, sometimes you and I are just led to grow. We become hungry, you know, spiritually, and we just want to know the Lord. Something happens in our lives. And, you know, I can remember multiple times in my life where that's happened, where I just couldn't get enough of the Word. I mean, just, you're opening it up, you're reading, and it just feels like you've read something maybe a hundred times, and yet brand new things seemingly just kind of jump out at you, you know, and it's all new. There are other times, though, that growth is forced on us, you know, through a tough season of life maybe through trials. The one thing that's certain, though, is that God wants us to grow, and it doesn't come easy. You know, you and I can stop, and we can have instant relationship with God. You know, we can stop and pray and have instant forgiveness and an instant relationship between you you and I and God. I mean, just like that. But we can't have instant maturity. We don't just grow because we pray some prayer. That becomes more difficult. Because now for me to gain spiritual insight or godly wisdom, all the things that God really wants me to to acquire, now I've seemingly got to go through some things that maybe I didn't choose to go through. What John's going to do here in verses 12 through 14 is he's going to talk a little bit about the stages of a spiritual life. And he's going to talk about, you know, our need to physically go further and what that means in life. He's going to use the physical stages of life as a metaphor here for us in the way that to show what really a stage of a spiritual life ought to look like. He's going to call believers three different names. He's going to call some believers little children. He's going to refer to other ones as young men and others as fathers. Now, even though he uses the masculine here, it doesn't mean just males. This is all about mankind. Now, each state has to do with the spiritual level of a believer. It has nothing to do with age. It has nothing to do with the physical season of life. But it has to do with the spiritual season of life. So let's stop in 1 John chapter 2 and read through verses 12, 13, and 14. John writes and he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. 
I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now what John's going to do here is he's going to start off with stage one here and that's little children in verses 12 and 13. And he starts off and he says this again about the children. He says, I'm writing to you little children Now, he uses an interesting word here when he says that. He starts off and uses this word technia for little children. It means newly born ones or or baby Christian. It would be easy to stop and see. That's where you would begin. These would be the people that, you know, just have made some decision. They haven't been a believer very long. You know, somewhere along the line, they've, they've made a decision to follow Christ. And so they're still brand new in their faith. But when you get to verse 13, and he repeats the saying again at the second part of verse 13, he says, I write to you children, he changes the word. The first time he used technia, which means newly born one. The second time, though, he changes it, and he used the word pedia, which means immature one. Now, The reason why that's a big deal is because what it implies. Both of them could be used over little children, but the word pedia here at least gives the idea that this is someone that should have grown and hasn't. You know, as believers in Christ, that's sometimes true of us. Paul even wrote about it. Go back in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 Paul is dealing with the believers in Corinth and he stops in verse one and he says this about the believers there. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, he's not saying that they're actually real infants, but he's saying spiritually where they're at is they're sort of infantile in their belief. Now, we'll kind of get into that in a minute, what that kind of entails here. But let me give you another one. Go over to the right to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Look at verses 11, or excuse me, 12 and 13. Hebrews 5, the writer of Hebrews says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of God since he is a child. Do you realize what he's saying there? He's looking at the believer and he's saying, look, you should have grown to a certain point now where you can take the difficult concepts of God and you can begin to apply them to your life and understand what these things mean. But what you really need to hear over and over again is just that God loves you. You're never going to grow deep like that. Yes, it's true. Yes, it's a real thing. Yes, we all need to hear that, but you need to understand more. You need to grow. And unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. You know, it's interesting. As I was thinking about this this past week about little children, I started thinking about what are the things that are true about the little children? For example, they're very ruled by their emotions. Same as maybe a young and immature believer. Something happens and they're easily frightened. My grandkids love to play this game, we call it RAR, where basically I go hide and then they come looking for me and, and in the dark I jump out, ah! you know, and they scream, ah! and they're like, ah, 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 do it again. You know, I mean, and we do it over and over again, you know, and they like that. You know, if I do that to my wife, she would look at me going, what, what are you doing? 
you know. It's a different world. They love the idea of the emotional swings. They love all that stuff. They're easily frightened. They're easily excited. I can pull out a piece of candy. They get really excited. You know, they're easily distracted. You know what they really need? They need the family that's around them to help them grow, to advance in their faith. Now, remember, when John is writing this, John is likely over 90 years old. And so he's at this place where, you know, being over 90, everybody that he looks on is sort of a youngster. He's the last of the first-generation believers. I mean, he walked with Jesus. But now he's writing to second and third and even fourth-generation believers, some of whom are struggling. And so what he does here is he tells us in verses 12 through 13 three things that are true about little children here. He's going to give three things here. The first thing he's going to tell us here, again, in verse 12 is, he says this. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Boy, that's a great reminder. How important is that? You think of how many different people that have come along in life and had something happen in their life and then they feel completely like, oh, God could never forget me and I need to remind them over and over again, of course God forgive you. He's good to his word. If God says he'll forgive you, you have been forgiven. So we need to remember that. I mean, it's, truth is, forgiveness is really central to everything in our faith. I was thinking about it, you know, I was 14 years old when I made a decision to follow Christ. And I can remember going home, and there were a lot of things I didn't know. I didn't know what the word justification meant. I didn't know what the word propitiation meant. You know what I knew? Forgiveness. I knew that God had forgiven me, and that was perfect. I was a brand new believer. And now I could explain this concept of, of forgiveness to people that were around me. It was just a great reminder in fact, it's such an important reminder in the church that you ever thought about, like, you know, once a month we stop and we do communion, you know, we have the, the tables back there and we bring around, you know, the little, the little piece of bread and the little piece of, ju the, the bit of juice and we, we do that. Do you know why we do that? It's to remind you that Jesus died on a cross to forgive you. That's why you do that. That's why Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, what I've done. So forgiveness is a huge part of what we want to do. Now, the second thing he says here about these little children here in verse 12, he keeps going. He says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now he gives us the why. The first thing he does is he tells us what he does, but now he's going to tell us why does God forgive us. And he forgives us for his name's sake. Now, this is an important one because oftentimes as young believers, we think somehow that we might be deserving of forgiveness. That maybe we're just kind of winsome enough and God just sort of looks at us and loves us and he wants to, you know, forgive us. That's really not the primary reason that forgiveness happens. The primary reason forgiveness happens not because I'm deserving. It happens because of who God is. It has to do with God's character. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Keep your finger here in John, and I want you to go back into the Old Testament to one of the prophets, the prophet Ezekiel. It's right before the book of Daniel, Ezekiel. And I want you to go to chapter 36. Because the Lord says something in here in Ezekiel 36 that kind of explains here what he's going to do. 
He says here in verse 22, Ezekiel 36, he says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. I'm not doing this because you deserve it. I'm not doing it because you're, you know, you're a pretty people. I'm doing it for the sake of my name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when, uh, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. In other words, what God is saying is, look, here, here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to forgive you and all of the world is going to know that there is a God who provides forgiveness even to people who don't deserve forgiveness. That's what I'm going to do. His grace is going to be on display. God's holiness is going to be put to the side by God's grace so that he can extend love and forgiveness to people. See, we're supposed to, as young believers, come to the place where we begin to realize that God didn't save me because I'm good. That God saved me because he's good. That's why. In fact, let me show you something. Keep your finger here in John again. Go back over to Psalm 79. Psalm 79, look at verses 8 and 9. He says, do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are very, brought very low. Help us, O Lord, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for us our sins for your name's sake. God, do this because you are great and merciful. Would you do that? Psalm 25, verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. See, we never come before the Lord and go, I deserve to be forgiven, so forgive me. It doesn't work like that. We come before the Lord and go, God, you are great. And I'm asking because you're great, would you forgive me? Would you make me your child? God's name here stands for his character. We are forgiven on the basis of who he is. And by the way, this is what makes us family. You know, when you come into a church and you often hear people say things like, oh, hey, brother, you know, sister, and call each people call each other that. And, you know, people are always like, why do you kind of view each other as family? Because we've all been similarly forgiven, all been similarly brought into this family that none of us deserve. That's what makes us brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. Now, there's a third thing that he's going to say here, too, to these young, these little children here, and that's in verse 13, in the second part of it there, back in, in 1 John chapter 2. He says this, And I write to you, children, because you know the Father. You know, one of the most important things we can do as newborn believers in Christ is to recognize our parents, Right? My wife, um, my wife Gayla loves to watch this show called Call the Midwife. Anybody watch this show? Okay. Um, well, Call the Midwife is all about uh, these, these midwives who delivered all these babies in 1950s and 60s, you know, England. 
kind of in a, in a poorer area, stuff like that. And, and here's what I know about the show. Every single time I walk into the room and the show's on, there's a woman screaming, okay? <laughs> Which I, I don't really like to watch the show very much. But, but then what they do is after they scream and this baby comes out, immediately they wrap this baby up and they put the baby right up on, on the mom's chest right there. And so I walk in the other day and you hear the midwife say, the first thing this baby needs to see when it opens its eyes is its parent. That's good theology, right? First thing we need to see when we open our eyes spiritually is who our father is. It's the same thing. New believers need to know who their father is. Now, the problem here is that some people never get beyond that level of faith. That's the depth of their life spiritually. They even die of old age, but spiritually immature never having taken seriously their walk with Christ, never having responded to the call of God in their lives. And I'm going to be honest with you, that to me sounds like a spiritual loss. It's a waste of a lifetime that God has given them to use. I mean, think about how selfish is it for me to put my desires before the Lord's desire. Telling myself, well, God will understand or I have a special little dispensation from God. He's going to let me do it my way, but let, you know, I'll do it later. I'll do what God wants later, and later never came. I mean, think about that for a second. Can you imagine one day standing before the Lord, and the Lord looks at you, and he says, I had all these plans for you. And my only response is, I just thought I knew better than you, God. That's not a good answer. God wants us to grow. God wants us to mature. He wants us to take the life that we've been given and use it to the fullest extent, to use the resources that he's entrusted to us. But here's the thing. If I never get out of the maternity ward spiritually, I just stay there forever, eventually it becomes a rest home, right? I can't believe that that's what God would want for me. That's why John uses the word paedia, the immature ones. It's time to grow up. Now, there's a second stage here, and that is the young men and young women, verses 13 and 14. He says this again, I write to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And then if you go to the second part of verse 14, he says, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So John tells us three things here about the young men and the young women of faith. First of all, he tells us they're strong. And then he tells us why they're strong, because they know the word. And then as a result of being strong in the word, they have overcome the evil one. Well, how does the word make me strong? Well, keep your finger here in John again, and I want you to go back to Psalm 119. Psalms is the longest and biggest book in the Old Testament. You can't miss it. If you go to about the middle of your Bible, it's right there. Psalm 119 what he says, starting in verse 9. He asks a really important question here. David writes here and he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? In other words, how do I do this right, God? How do I get past what everybody else does and grow and become what you want me to be? How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. 
Well, what does that mean? Verse 11, he says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We become strong because we put the word inside of us. We begin to use it. We begin to memorize it. We begin to read it and think on it and pray about it and use it to overcome the evil one. That's the result. Now that term there, overcome the evil one, refers to the breaking of the power of sin in our lives that happens when you and I come to faith in Christ. In fact, again, keep your finger here in John. Go over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Mark was not kidding when he said we're committed to being in the word, right? Romans chapter 6, starting with verse 5. Paul writes and he says, For if we have been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like this. We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Now stop, look up for a second. That's a really important statement and this is a little bit off subject here. But I've heard people say this before. Well, every time you sin, you re-crucify Christ. That's not true. Stop saying that. Jesus went to the cross one time, it was enough. He doesn't have to go to the cross again. That's why we don't typically have crosses that Christ still hangs on it because he came off of it and now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Keep going here. Verse 8, now if we, say, if we have died with Christ, we believe that you will also live with him knowing that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life, <clears throat> but the life he lives, he lives to God. So that we, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in our mortal bodies and make, to make you obedient to its passions. You don't have to sin any longer. That's what it's saying. What he's telling us here is that new birth experience, that time that you came forward in some meeting or prayed with your parents or had something like that where you stopped and you confessed your sin and before God you asked him to come and live inside of you, something amazing happened at that moment. At that very moment, you were freed from the penalty of sin. You were forgiven, but you were also freed from the power of sin. Meaning, you don't have to sin anymore. I mean, there was a time before you came to faith in Christ, you were a slave to sin. I mean, go back to Ephesians chapter 3 for a minute. Ephesians chapter 3, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes and he says this, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you realize what he's saying there? 
There was a time that you did exactly what the world told you to do. That's what you did. You were a slave to it. But you're not a slave anymore. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you were set free. You were forgiven, and now you're empowered to not have to do that any longer. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to sin. I mean, we choose to sin every single day. I would be lying to you if I said I didn't get in the car, and as I'm driving up Pima, you know, and the sign says 45. <laughs> do I have to say it? I mean, you know what I mean? Anybody else do this? I mean, come on, we do that kind of stuff, right? Sometimes we sin and don't even know it. I could be driving along, good tune comes on, you know, and I'm fiddling with it, you know, I'm listening to this stuff, or, you know, and, and it's just kind of going on, and I look down and I'm doing 70. It happens, right? I didn't mean to do it, but I can. But here's the thing, I don't have to do that any longer. I'm not a slave to sin any longer. Now, John keeps going here in the second part of verse 14, and now he's going to tell them why they are strong. He says, they know God's word. Do you realize what a help that is, knowing the word? Let me just give you a little test. Let's just say that you and I are just stopping for a minute. We're having a conversation, and I say to you, you know, I'm really... Like, in the, I got this turmoil going on. I, I just feel like there's no peace in my life. You know what the answer is? Philippians chapter 4 says, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the, and the peace of God, which, which goes beyond all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In fact, it even takes it a step further. In verses 8 and 9, it'll tell you, you know what, if you'll just fill your mind with things that are they're true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and anything excellent, anything good of repute, and the God of peace will remain with you. That's a victory. Instead of living in fear, now I, I, I start, excuse me, living without peace, I start thinking, I, I can have peace if I just simply go to the Lord. Let me give you another one. What if I say to you, you know, I'm kind of afraid. What's the answer to that? Do you know that the Bible tells us to fear not 365 times? How many, time, how many days in a year are there? Pretty important little concept, right? Fear not. Let me show you what... This is what the Lord says about fear. A fear or excuse me, Isaiah ch chapter 41, verse 13. Isaiah 41, 13. Would you put that up here, please? For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. That's a pretty good thing. It is I who say to you, fear not. I'm the one who helps you. You know why I know that verse? Because there's been a lot of times I've had to go to that one because fear has engulfed me too. Because we live in this world where peace goes away and I better know how to get it. And we live in a world where we've been challenged and, and, and by things and they can be scary to us and I need to find some place where I can go and have God answer that for me. 
So where our strength comes from, it comes from knowing God's word and being in the word. Now there's a third stage here, and that is the stage of the fathers. Look at verse 13 back in 1 John. He says this about the fathers. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. Drop down to verse 14. He's going to actually say the same thing. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. What is he saying here? He's saying these are believers who have grown out of childhood. These are the believers who have fought the daily battles of life and have matured to the point that they trust God to get them through. They've they've lived through the ups and downs of life. They've lived through the heartaches. They've lived through the health issues, the financial issues, the relational issues. And they have trusted God and come out the other side okay. I was trying to think, how do I explain this? And then then it occurred to me, probably every single one of us has watched a war movie at some time in life, right? Saving Private Ryan or some, you know, something. We've all watched war movies. And you know, the truth is, if I were to go around right now with a mic and say, hey, give me a take on war, every one of us would have a take on war. And then it occurred to me, there was a guy sitting in the first service this morning that I've had conversations with before that was in Vietnam. He has a different take on things. You know why? He didn't see the movie, he went there. He lived through it. See, I can't comment with great depth because I saw the movie. But he could comment because he lived through it. Those are the fathers and mothers of the faith. Their value in the church is is amazing. They They have gone to God. They have seen him answer. They've trusted him to provide. They have trusted him to carry them through these difficult moments. They've seen him. They've heard him. And they found him to be faithful. And it doesn't matter how old you are. That's not the issue here. John makes the statement here, you know him who is from the beginning. These are the spiritual adults. These are the people that their knowledge of God and his faithfulness just tends to grow. Their faith has just ripened. It didn't come off the tree early. It stayed there. This passage is so important to us because it really challenges us if you really think about it because you have the little children, those that are, that are immature at this point, they know their heavenly father. They got it, great. But the fathers and the mothers of the faith, they know him who is from the beginning. You know what that's telling you? You know that God that's powerful, that created ex nihilo out of nothing? The God who sustains all of the universe. The God in Job who tells us that he knows exactly where every single creature needs to go at every single moment. That's the God I know. Or the God that's personal enough to know what's on my heart, what's rolling around in my brain, what's what's pushing me and, and scaring me and frightening me. He knows everything before it even comes to my brain, the thoughts or the words to my mouth. He knows it. The question is, where are you at in this growth chart? If you're young in the faith, I mean, if you're a pretty new believer, you're right where you need to be, knowing that God is your father 
and that he has saved you, not because you were good, but because he's good. Because his name's sake. But if you have been a believer for a while and you just simply have never gotten out of the maternity ward spiritually, it's time for you to start putting God's word in your heart and becoming a warrior a little bit. It's time to grow. It's time to take on the challenges of life and meet them and trust God and see him so that you come out the other side and you can literally say, I've walked with God, or better yet, God's walked with me to this moment. And you know what? It's scary, but you can trust him. If you fall into that last category, I want to encourage you, you ought to be thinking what Mark mentioned during the announcements about becoming a discipler. You ought to be thinking about reproducing your life into somebody else. That doesn't mean you're perfect. You know what it meant? It meant you've already walked down a road that someone behind you has not walked yet and they just need you to walk with them and help them. Where are you at on this growth chart? Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would challenge us to grow and to become the men and women you want us to be. That we'd be honest with ourselves. That we'd be open to what you want for us in our lives. Lord, if we hear you calling, Lord, I pray that you would move in such a way to create obedience that people would respond. They'd begin to take your word into their hearts that they could trust you. And for those that have done that, that they would step out and begin to lead those that need to be led to a greater depth with you. Lord, I pray you'll do this for our good because we're in massive need, God, but mostly for your glory. Thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name. Regardless of where you're at spiritually, God wants you to put his word inside of you that you would be strong, so that you would overcome, so that you would become the fathers and mothers of the faith. God bless you all.